Menu Stories, an ongoing series of multimedia stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. This is our podcast, and I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein. In today's interview, episode 38, we get the rare opportunity to meet Dr. Andrew Weil and hear his personal story, which eventually led him to open the health and flavor-conscious True Food Kitchen restaurant chain with veteran restaurateur Sam Fox. Dr. Weil is known around the world for his work in preventive health, nutrition, and alternative plant-based medicine. The Harvard-trained physician has long been interested in the role food plays in our health outcomes. In addition to publishing several books on the topic, including the most recent Fast Food, Good Food, his deep-seated interest in plants and botany began as a child. I grew up in Philadelphia in a row house. I became very interested in plants. We had a little plot of ground in the backyard that I did as much gardening and planting in as I could. But that interest led me to become a botany major as an undergraduate and started me on a lifelong interest in medicinal plants and food plants. Let's have a listen. We are here at True Food Kitchen in Walnut Creek on the day of their opening. And we are here with Dr. Andrew Weil. Thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. Would you mind uh, introducing yourself and describing True Food Kitchen and your role? Sure. I'm Dr. Andrew Weil. I'm a physician and teacher. I came up with the concept of True Food Kitchen. I'm a partner and owner. A lot of the recipes are mine. A lot of the ideas for the food are mine. So I'm heavily involved. That's great. Can you also speak to Sam Fox and sort of how you connected? Sure. Uh, Sam Fox is a successful restaurateur based in Arizona. I don't know how many restaurants he has now, a number of different concepts. I was introduced to to him by a mutual friend about nine years ago. And uh, let me just back up a bit. I'm a very good home cook. And Uh over the years, many people have said to me, you ought to open a restaurant. Uh, I was smart enough to know that I knew nothing about the restaurant business and it looked like a very tough business so I was never tempted to do that. But when I met Sam Fox, you know, I, I said to him that I didn't think anyone had brought together the worlds of good dining and good nutrition. Um, and I'm very frustrated when I eat out. I, I'm a pescatarian. Mm-hmm. I'm careful about my food choices. And when I eat out, first of all, they're very limited menu choices for me. And most of the time, I can make better food at home than I can get in restaurants. So, And also, the places that I've been to that advertise themselves as being healthy restaurants, to me, the food in them is either boring, weird, or both. Right. <laughs> and I just I don't think anybody has done it right. So I said to Sam that I'd love to see a restaurant that would, above all, serve tasty, delicious, wonderful food that happened to conform to the principles of good nutrition. Mm-hmm. I'm very involved with nutritional science um, as director of the University of Arizona Center for Integrative Medicine. I help organize an annual conference on nutrition and health in which we bring together the leading nutrition experts to present their findings to clinicians. We've been doing this for you know, now 14 years. So I, I really keep abreast of cutting edge nutritional science. Mm-hmm. And I came up some years ago with an anti-inflammatory diet because I am convinced that inappropriate low-level inflammation is the root cause of most of the serious chronic diseases that kill and disable people prematurely. And that following an anti-inflammatory lifestyle is your best shot at optimum health and longevity. Diet plays a big role in that because food choices really influence your inflammatory status. And the standard American diet, which by the way is now abbreviated SAD, 
sad oh. in the main, in the medical <laughs> literature is strongly pro-inflammatory. It gives yeah. us the wrong fats, the wrong carbohydrates, the not enough of the protective elements in fruits, vegetables, herbs, and spices. Mm -hmm. I used the Mediterranean diet as a template because we have a great deal of scientific evidence for its health benefits. Mm -hmm. And I tweaked it by adding Asian influences because I've spent a lot of time in Japan and other areas of Asia. So I added soy foods and mushrooms and spices like turmeric and ginger, which are strongly anti-inflammatory, and came up with this anti-inflammatory diet. And that's really the basis of the food philosophy here. Now, when I suggested this to Sam Fox, mm -hmm. his initial reaction, he made a face and said, health food doesn't sell. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and this was nine years ago? Yeah. Or, uh -huh. Yeah. And I think At he... At that time, probably, he was right. Probably. <laughs> but I think he thought that I meant tofu and sprouts. And uh, I invited him and his wife to dinner at my home. I cooked for them. They liked the food. His wheels turned, and there was a space that opened in Phoenix. What did you cook for them? I made them... Let's see if I remember now. I made them a... Uh, wild salmon, I think it was poached salmon with an interesting sauce. I made them kale salad. Mm -hmm. I can't remember what I made for dessert. I frankly don't remember now. It was a good meal. So he said he'd give it a try, but he said he was very skeptical about yeah. the concept. He found an executive chef for me to work with who I liked, Michael Stebner. And I, I've, I've found chefs not very open in the past, that they seem really fixed in their ways. Yeah. But Michael was open, and, and we co-created recipes and sort of refined the concept. And the rest restaurant opened in Phoenix just as the economy tanked and everyone said we were completely crazy. From the moment the doors opened it was a, a wild success and Sam said well you, this doesn't mean anything. He said people come to a new restaurant. He said it doesn't mean anything. So after a month you know when still when this, we were having this you know enormous success he said no it doesn't mean anything you have to wait till like you know three months three months he said well it doesn't really mean anything at six months he said well I haven't seen anything like this before and then he right. said he'd never had people come up to him on the street and hug him for opening a, a restaurant wow. and people began to beg him to open we, we need one of these in Buffalo New York we want one in Kansas City and he'd never had that happen the other thing that he said he'd never seen before was people coming in to eat in the restaurant four and five times a week because they liked it so much and felt so good. So then we, you know, the rest is history. You know, it's like we've now got, this is our 15th restaurant. Congratulations. Uh, That's great. It's great. They're all doing well. And, uh, you know, I think we've refined the concept, but it's still true to the idea of First and foremost, serving delicious food that's very appealing, that conforms to good nutritional philosophy, and people feel good when they eat here. So, I mean, that touches on a good point, because a lot of people do go out, when they go out to eat, it's more of like a rich treat, yep. it's sort of like an unhealthy treat, yep. but it's for the taste and the flavor. So, I mean, you sort of touched on this a little bit at the beginning, but why do you think this concept stood out so much in Phoenix, when there really is a lot of health food and smoothie places and sandwich spots and that kind of stuff? Like, why do you think? As I said, you know, the, most of those places, though, to me, the food, it, it's uninteresting. Yeah. Uh, this food knocks you out. It tastes so good. It looks so great. And the great challenge that I've had over the years is trying to convince people that there's no opposition between food that's good and food that's good for you. You know, most people think that eating healthy means giving up everything you like. And I've always felt that it is possible to get as much or more pleasure from healthy food 
often from unhealthy food. But people don't believe that unless they've had the experience of it. So the purpose of this restaurant is to give people the experience of food that tastes really good, that gives you a lot of pleasure, and also happens to be good for you. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned that the inspiration comes from the Mediterranean diet and also from the Japanese diet. Mm-hmm. And those areas are all pretty well known for longevity. Yeah. For people who may not know your own background and your history mm-hmm. and connection to the health and wellness space, yep. would you mind giving a brief background about what you've done? Because sure. you're not just your average doctor. Yeah. You've done a lot of I, I practice and teach integrative medicine which is the intelligent combination of conventional and alternative medicine that really emphasizes the body's natural healing potential and looks at all aspects of lifestyle and treats the whole person and so forth. I'm an expert in botanical medicine. I was trained as a botanist before I went to medical school. I have traveled widely, spent a lot of time in other cultures, interested in their healing practices and their culinary traditions. I run a a center of excellence at the University of College of Medicine, which trains physicians and medical residents, medical students, allied health professionals in this field of integrative medicine. And nutrition is a big part of that. So, you know, we have, I think, an excellent uh, curriculum in nutrition. And um, it is astonishing that physicians especially, but all health professionals are so poorly trained in that. The total instruction I got in nutrition and four years at Harvard Medical School was 30 minutes which we're grudgingly allowed to a dietitian at one hospital I worked at to tell us about special diets we could order for patients. And it really it hasn't changed a whole lot. You know, when nutrition is taught, it's really taught as biochemistry, and it's forgotten as soon as the biochemistry exams are over. One consequence of that is that the food served in hospitals in this country is a disgrace. You know, at last I checked, something like 44% of American hospitals have fast food restaurants on their premises. I mean, it's, it's pretty ghastly. So part of my mission is sort of raising nutritional awareness in the health professions and also in the general public. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that touches on a topic that's pretty close to my heart. I, a long time ago, studied public health, and yeah. um, I actually worked in the diabetes business for a long time. And one of the biggest aha moments and sort of scary things that I remember learning in that world was how little time physicians had to learn about nutrition. as you said, and also just preventive care and even diabetes, which is a huge epidemic in America. And getting bigger all the time. Right. We're in such a nutritional mess in this country. The the epidemic of obesity in young people being followed by the epidemic of type 2 diabetes, these are big red flashing lights. And it's hard to know even where to begin to try to change things for the better. I mean, the problem is that we've made the unhealthiest food cheapest and most available. We don't subsidize fruits and vegetables, so they're out of the reach of many poor people. You know, we've got to stop subsidizing commodity crops like soy and corn and begin subsidizing fruits and vegetables. Where I would start, I mean, if we could make one positive step, if we could get people to stop drinking sweet liquids, that would be a huge step. And it's not just soda, it's also fruit juice, it's energy drinks, it's putting sugar in coffee and tea. I mean, that, that would be a great public health campaign just to start somewhere. Right. So anyway, we have, we have our work cut out for us. Yeah, and I mean, well, you're touching on a topic that's a big point of discussion right now in this area, especially around the soda tax right. and all the politics around that and big soda. So how do you think that True Food Kitchen is helping healthy food become more accessible to communities that may not be able to afford it on a regular basis or even more accessible to areas that really don't have many other options other than fast food? 
Okay, a huge problem. As you know, there's a higher density of fast food restaurants in poor neighborhoods. Right. You know, they're targeted disproportionately. Yeah, uh, common complaint I hear is that healthy food is too expensive. You know, you can't shop in Whole Foods. At organic foods, are more pricey. And they're uh, further away. They and don't further exist. away, all that. Right. Another thing that I've tried to do in my work is to show people that you can prepare at home simple, tasty dishes that don't require a lot of time or work or expense. And again, people don't believe that unless they've seen it. Uh, that's why I've written the cookbooks that I do and the new one that I have called Fast Food, Good Food. Or these are fairly simple recipes that can mm -hmm. be made at home. I hope that if people who eat here will be inspired to make some of these dishes at home or at least take some of the basic principles away. For example, the kale salad. You know, I take some credit and responsibility for popularizing kale in this country. Yeah, you know, we were making kale 10 yeah. years ago. <laughs> I, I, just, I was in Italy, I was in Tuscany, and was served that kale salad. I would never have considered eating raw kale. First of all, I hated kale growing up. And then, I don't know, I was in my 30s, I was gardening, and I began growing varieties of kale that I liked, but I stir-fried them and sautéed them. And I, the idea of eating it raw was very unappealing. And then I had the salad in Italy, and it was a revelation that you could, you know, leave, especially the, that black, uh, Tuscan kale, if you leave it sit in lemon juice and salt for 20-30 minutes, it takes the bitterness out and changes the texture. So I put that on the menu of the first true food, and it became our, one of our signature dishes. It's been amazing to me to watch the popularity of that. I was in that restaurant uh, some years ago, and a, a young mother stopped, and she had two young kids with her, and she said to the kids, tell Dr. Wyatt what your favorite <laughs> thing to eat is. And the little girl was embarrassed and hit her head, and the boy said, kale salad, kale salad. <laughs> so, I mean, who would have ever thought yeah. American kids would be eating kale salad? So I think that's an example. And, and she said that they made that at home all the time, several yeah. nights a week. So if we can inspire people by giving them things that are examples of simple healthy quick preparations that they can make at home I think we've done something concrete <laughs> yeah absolutely and so as a botanist and physician can you share what the actual health benefits of kale are well you know it's in the uh, the family of cruciferous vegetables the cabbage family and all of these are full of cancer protective substances and they're also good sources of calcium by the way, there's just an article showing that uh, taking calcium supplements may not be a good idea, that it's much better to get your calcium from food. That the, that? the body seems to process them differently, mm -hmm. and it may be that taking calcium as supplements contributes to the development of calcium plaque buildup in arteries. Wow. Interesting. So people should be aware of, of uh, food sources of calcium and, yeah. and uh, kale and, and broccoli. And how it's actually delivered how it's your delivered, body. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. This is Rebecca Goberstein, and you're listening to Menu Stories, an ongoing series of stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. This is our podcast, and we'll be right back with Dr. Andrew Weil of True Food Kitchen. I grew up in Philadelphia in a row house. Um, I became very interested in plants, something I got from my mother that she got from her mother. Um, we had a little plot of ground in the backyard that I did as much gardening and planting in as I could. But that interest led me to become a botany major as an undergraduate and started me on a lifelong interest in career interest in medicinal plants and food plants. I was always interested in the mind, how the mind affected the body. 
I began reading about alternative medicine when I was in college, so I had all these interests before I went to medical school. And then when I finished my medical training, I really felt I didn't, I didn't want to practice the way that I'd been taught. First of all, I felt I'd learned nothing about how to keep people healthy, which I thought should be the main business of doctors. Right. And the methods that I was taught to treat disease, I thought did too much harm. And I didn't know what to do in place of that, so I dropped out of medicine and I made my living as a writer for a number of years and found ways to travel around the world, live in other cultures, study the things I was interested in. And then uh, in uh, 1973, my car broke down in Arizona. <laughs> took uh, six weeks to get fixed. I never left. I never thought I'd be living in Tucson. Uh, it's turned out to be a good place for me. And uh, I had begun writing about alternative medicine and natural medicine, and patients began showing up at my doorstep. I never really saw myself as practicing medicine, but they were very interesting people and patients, and I gradually was drawn into practicing what I first I called natural and preventive medicine, and then I began to call integrative medicine. So, you know, that's that's been my trajectory ever since. Yeah. You mentioned you grew up in row houses in yes. Philadelphia. So you, you really understand the concept of food deserts and yeah. what it was like to grow up. In, However, you know, I grew up in, in the, the I was born in 1942. So mm -hmm. uh, my, and my family, we always had two meals, at least two meals a day that were cooked from scratch. They were not by today's standards, necessarily healthy, but they were real food. You know, we didn't have fast food in those days. We didn't snack all day long. We ate out on weekends often, and we had restaurant meals that were, were nice. But people were generally, I think, I mean, as I say, we ate together as a family. The statistics that I've seen on the percentage of families that sit down to even one meal together a day is pretty dismal. And I see more and more unconscious eating, you know, people eating in their cars, in front of televisions, in front of devices. The um, incredible profusion of manufactured and refined food. And really, I think this is what's mostly doing us in. It's that so many people now are mostly eating manufactured, prepared, refined food. It's not real food. And that's an enormous change in eating habits. Sounds like you and Michael Pollan have a lot in common. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're good friends. <laughs> um, we, uh, we recently got to interview Angelo Garo, yeah. who is working on omnivore spices and salts. Um, oh, great. He trained Michael Pollan how to hunt oh, boars. <laughs> so we're kind of coming full circle here. I quote Michael Pollan. One of the lines of his that I really like is that our grandparents and great-grandparents wouldn't even recognize his food most of what people eat today. Right, right. And so, you know, the name of this restaurant, True Food, it is, I think that's very accurate. This is real. It's true food. Yeah. So what was kind of your first memory of food then? It sounds like you guys cooked a lot when you were a kid. Yeah, I'll tell you one memory that I had. My parents worked together and they owned a millinery supply store, ladies hats. I could think of nothing less interesting wow. <laughs> growing up. But they had, there was a man, an Italian native who worked with them. And occasionally we would be invited over to their home and they were an immigrant family for dinner. And it was like a real Italian dinner. And it was yeah. like, I mean, I remember that food so vividly. And the wife taught my mother how to make spaghetti sauce. And so once in a while we would do that. But I mean, that was like, to me, that was such fantastic food. It was exotic and real and wonderful. Yeah. And that's Mediterranean food right yes, there. Yes, Mediterranean so. food, right. Another yes. memory I have from my early days is there started to be all over Philadelphia these um, storefronts that would appear that had sort of red neon signs that said tomato pies. What was a tomato pie? I mean, the only vision I had was an app, like an apple pie made with tomatoes. Right. And I, why would anybody want to eat that? It took me a long time to discover that that was pizza. Wow. And then That's when awesome. I did, I was so mad that all these years I'd missed out on going in and eating it because I didn't know what a tomato pie was. Yeah. <laughs>
That was before they had the marketing exactly. figured out for it, I guess. That's really funny. I guess at the end of the day, that's kind of what yeah. it is. So then fast forward. Oh, one, let me oh, yeah. tell you one other story. I was always kicked out of the kitchen as a kid. You know, my, okay. my father's mother lived with us, and she was a good baker. And, uh, but my, my mother said, you know, you don't belong in the kitchen. Go out and play. And the kitchen, to me, was seemed really fascinating. My grandmother would let me watch her, you know, make stuff, which I was fascinated by. I didn't really... Well, she would make, uh, she'd make pies and use yeast. And fascinating. Anyway, uh, when I was in medical school, that was when I really first got into cooking. And I found that when I had spent long hours in hospitals in my third and fourth years, I would get in such bad mental states. I mean, we had long shifts, like 72 hours. You'd have to be in these hideous hospitals in Boston <laughs> with horrible food available. I yeah. mean, just, you, you, I can't even tell you. There was one, one of the Harvard hospitals. If you missed the cafeteria hours because you were working, they had a little room where they had food for medical students and interns. Saltines, peanut butter, you know, hydrogenated peanut butter and a soda machine. That was it. So I found that when I came home, if I would envision something wonderful I could make for myself and buy the ingredients and then spend a couple hours in the kitchen chopping vegetables and making it and enjoying it, that would put me back in a very good space. Yeah. And ever since, uh, cooking for me has been a kind of meditation. It puts me in a space that I like. Mm-hmm. So I think that's when I first discovered the, you know, the pleasures of preparing food. So I think a question that a lot of people have is very hard to create a large-scale food concept while still keeping it truly healthy, locally sourced, and fresh. So how are you doing that in a real way? Well, I think it becomes ever more challenging as we have more restaurants open. When we started in Arizona, and especially in Southern California, you know, it's the Garden of Eden there. It's very easy to find local suppliers with wonderful produce. When we've gone east for the first time, you know, it's much more tricky to find the sources of things that we like that are up to our quality. The other thing is maintaining the standards of the restaurants and consistency of quality. And that's a matter of choosing staff and training them, and that's operations, which Sam is very good at. But I, th- I think it is absolutely true that it becomes more and more of a challenge as we becomes a bigger operation. I don't know what the future of it will be. But one thing, you know, I try as much as I can to visit the locations, and I always give them feedback about you know, <laughs> tell them what's right and what's not right. Do you surprise them? Yeah. <laughs> so it's a real kind yeah. of test. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Although it's probably stressful for them, but it's good. Right. And I'm also constantly giving them ideas for new dishes, new ingredients, mm-hmm. you know, because I scan around for a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And I try things and I travel and I'm always bringing ideas back to the restaurant. I read somewhere that you have a ranch. No, I don't anymore. I lived on an old cattle ranch oh, out in okay. Arizona, and uh, it, was a, it was a wonderful place that bordered on Saguaro National Park, so literally I could walk out my back door into wilderness. Wow. But it was far away. It was too big, too old, and I, about three and a half years ago, I moved into town in Tucson. Got it. But I, I spend my summers on an island in British Columbia, and I have a wonderful garden there that's yeah. just a great source of pleasure. I get most of my food out of it in the summers. There is something meditative around seeing how food grows and yeah. picking it and sort of connecting yeah. to the earth. So I think that's what a lot of people love about even urban gardening and kind of creating little hodgepodge gardens in their I once had even. I once had a group of medical students from the University of Arizona out to my house when I had a, a nice home garden and uh, it was uh, winter and the broccoli was forming big heads 
And I remember this one medical student, his jaw just dropped. He had never seen broccoli on a plant. He couldn't believe that there was like a head of broccoli on this right. plant. I don't know what, what he thought, how it grew, that you pulled it up from you know, underground yeah. or grew on a tree. <laughs> but he was just astounded. He'd yeah. never seen it. So with that in mind, we were kind of talking about the expansion of the restaurant chain. What made you decide to expand to the Bay Area? Well, this is such a logical place for this restaurant. You know, we had a, a number of uh, stores in Southern California, and I was really pressing for us to get up here. I lived in San Francisco in 1968-69. I did my internship at Mount Zion Hospital. Wow, what a cool yeah. time to live here. <laughs> yeah, it was a, a hot time. That's you know, awesome. I've spent a lot of time in the East Bay. I've, I've spent time in Marin. I've, you know, been down the peninsula, so I know the area very well. I have yeah. a lot of friends here. Uh, I, I think it's a, an area where there's a lot of great food consciousness and general healthy living consciousness so it just seems such an obvious place for us to be and uh, you know I wish right now we had had a place in San Francisco you know the challenges of having a restaurant there but we will eventually be there I would expect it will open yeah (laughs) Uh, you know it's it's a moderate price point I think compared to many other places in the city we're not fast casual but it's not a white tablecloth restaurant so I think the combination of that plus the inventiveness of the food and the fact that there is a coherent nutritional philosophy behind it really distinguishes it. And so in addition to Walnut Creek now, which is where we're recording this interview, you also already have an opening restaurant in Palo Alto. Yes, that just opened last week. I was down there for that. Uh, And I understand we're looking at a location in San Jose now. That's great. You also brought on recently Christine Barone. Yes. Who came from Starbucks and the La Boulange expansion. Mm -hmm. What are you hoping that she'll kind of bring from that experience? Well, I think she's young, dynamic. She's got a great business background. Mm -hmm. I think she gets the concept of food. I, I really look forward to working with her. I think she's going to uh, take it to a new level and I think she'll have a lot of input into the into restaurant design. I, I think she's a very good person to bring on board. So what's been the most challenging thing about this latest turn in your career evolution? Well, I love it. You know, it's given me a chance to be involved in the restaurant business without any of the parts that I have no, not good at, you know, like I don't have anything to do with it day-to-day operations. There have been frustrations for me in working with Sam. We come from very different ideas about food and what we like, and we've learned how to compromise, I think, and work together. Just as an example, when on the first day that the first restaurant opened in Phoenix, I walked in and there were packets of NutraSweet, and uh, I said, you can't do this. And he said, no, you have to have that in a restaurant. I said, no, I think there are alternatives. And and also on the first menu, he had soda. And I said, no, we're not going to serve, you know, we're not going to serve soda. He said, you have to have soda on a restaurant menu. So so, you know, that's, that was one fight we had. And then I had you originally... Won. <laughs> I won that one. Okay, good. Uh, but, you know, I had originally did not want to have any red meat on the menu. And Sam said, you ha- you know, absolutely. So that's one that I gave in on. And we, he, we had steak tacos. And that became one of the biggest selling items, especially to men. So first we had bison. Uh, that became too expensive and difficult to source. So now it's grass-fed beef. So, you know, that's okay. And there's health benefits to that as well. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So the NutraSweet packets are not here and the soda right. is not here. So I think that kind of helps bring that authenticity and yeah. like a real health, healthy environment, which I think is really popular right now anyway. Absolutely, so I think yeah. my inexperienced <laughs> opinion. <laughs> um, so then what's been the most rewarding thing? I think for me it's been uh, seeing so many different people enjoy the food that I love and have always prepared including lots of kids and uh, you know it's it's great and and when I'm at the restaurants a lot of people stop me and tell me how much they enjoy it and you know thank me for bringing this to their area it's that's very gratifying 
Do you have any family members who have been able to come dine at True Food Kitchen? Well, my daughter is a huge fan. She's actually now, she's studying to become a registered dietitian. And uh, she's a very careful Fitting. eater. She's mostly a vegan. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, I didn't really push her, influence her, but she's very into healthy living, healthy lifestyle. So she's one of the restaurant's biggest fans. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah. And uh, does she live in Arizona as well? Uh, she, no, she's in Salt Lake City at the moment. Got it. Okay. Do you have a location there? No. Probably be a good one. Probably a good area. <laughs> no, she's unhappy about yeah. that. But we don't have one in Tucson where I live, which is a uh, great embarrassment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking sure, the time. It. it was a real pleasure. Great. You just heard the 38th episode of Menu Stories, an ongoing series of multimedia stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. This is our podcast, and if you enjoyed this story, please spread the word to your friends about the work we do. Subscribe to the Menu Stories series on menustories.com so you can get the next episode delivered to your inbox. On our website, you'll also find the complete episode with Dr. Weil with pictures and a behind-the-scenes video. You can find us on Facebook, Pinterest, and Instagram at Menu Stories. And on Twitter, we are at Menu underscore Stories. This podcast is also available on iTunes, Auto Radio, and other lovely podcast apps. This episode was produced and edited by yours truly, photographed by Monica Lowe, assisted by me, and all video production work was done by Patrick Wong, as always. I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein, and until next time, happy eating.